All right, we are live. My name is Rob here from Rob School of Music, and we are honored to have Living Color here hanging with us. Unbelievable full band. We're going to tell stories. We're going to laugh. We're going to we're going to live life together. So how are you guys doing? We're good. We're good. I'm good. Don't everybody I don't jump know. in at once. Yeah. I'm fine. Everything's we're, good. We're all surviving. And, uh, you know, yeah, just, the far yeah. apart, we're always together. How about that? I'm being nice today. I like that. That's very positive. Very positive. Get so, ready. It won't last. Anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, you guys have been around the world and played so many incredible stages and we'll kind of, you know, go individually throughout some of the experiences. But the first question I always like to jump off with is being that we're in music school, a lot of our students are um, not in age necessarily, but just in experience on the younger side of things, you know, towards the beginning of their journey. And a big thing we try and do is put them in, in groups together where we get them out back when you could do shows. We would have them perform at a, a local event or something like that. And a big thing they deal with is stage fright and nerves, anxiety. Um, do you guys have any tips to overcoming that sort of stuff? Wow. My, my, uh, uh, my axiom is Feel the fear and do it anyway. Use that fear that you have. Every time I go on stage, no matter when I'm going on stage, no matter what I'm doing, I always get a bit of stage fright. But I use that to propel myself onto the stage. It's like you never know what's going to come out of it. So feel it and go for it. That's awesome. Advice. Yeah. Uh, wow. That stage fright is a weird, is a weird thing because um I remember, man, the first time I was on stage in front of a lot of people, I was, I was, my back was turned to the audience and I was asked if the curtain was closed. It was a high school assembly. And I was, <laughs> I was so freaked out. I was yelling at the drummer, what, what's the first tune? And the, the curtains opened up behind me and I turned around and it was the whole junior class. And then I just started, I don't even know what happened, man. I just started hitting the guitar. And then uh, it was over. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like um, the music. The music is going to carry you. You have to have faith in the music. Whatever else is going on, uh, you know, we played on a lot of big stages, and you think you're over it, but you can you can get caught. Anybody can get caught with nervousness. But if you put the music in front of you, you're gonna be you're gonna be okay. You have to have trust. You have to trust that. You have to trust that, and trust your mates on stage that they're gonna also hold you up to um, whatever's going on. That's that's pretty much it. I like that. I like that. Awesome. Well, that's, you know, whenever I ask that question, the answers are always across the board. And I think the bottom line is whatever works for one person is we only want to build them into ourselves. So if that works for one guy, that works for another guy, we should all take that in and just find what works for us because it's so individualized. Like a big thing for us here is we try and it's not cookie cutter. Music is hard to be cookie cutter, right? So we try and teach each person in a different way. And if a different bit of information about overcoming some sort of adversity helps one person particularly, I think that's just a beautiful thing. Um, so, I mean, you guys, talent is just absurd. I think each one of you is a master of what you do. Um, we teach all different instruments here. And we've spoken with many guitarists along the way, not a ton of vocalists. So, Corey, do you have any tips on... You know, what's, what's a day in the life of a, uh, of a gig? You warm up routine, warm down, tea, lemon, honey. None of that's uh, the, the, the 
The only thing that works is working. Um, so if you're going to sing, and if you're going to sing with a band, you have you have to be prepared. You know, your 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 instrument has to be ready to go at, at a moment's notice. So that means that you have to be warmed up and warm enough to get to a certain point and get your body to do a certain thing. You have to be and you have to be prepared for the next time you sing. So that means you have to warm down. So uh, in terms of like things to it, it, to 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 put into your body, water is number one. Always nothing but water. Uh, honey and lemon are not going to do anything, but put put a put a bandaid on on whatever issues that you have. But the more hydrated you are, the more your body is in a place that uh, that is loose and ready to go, the better off you are. Um, my advice to singers in band is tell everyone to, in rehearsals, tell everyone to turn down because you're not playing in front of, you're not playing in front of a live audience. You're playing in front of yourselves. So you don't have to be, you don't have to go to 12. You can play it, you can play it at eight and be just as fine. You wear out the singer, the gig is no good. So that's my advice. I love that. I absolutely love that. I'm, my friends make fun of me because guitar is my, my prime instrument. And I'm the only guitarist on the planet you're going to meet that you never have to tell to turn down. I'm always absurdly low because I always played with good singers and I always was concerned about I don't want to make their wanna job harder than it has to be. Want to start a band? I know some other guys that I can, that I can really have a good time, maybe. <laughs> um, How do you tell a drummer to turn down? How do you tell yeah, a drummer to turn down? I don't know. All my drummers would throw sticks at me whenever I asked. So. <laughs> Um, all right. Now, how about gear stuff? I mean, if you can see, I got tons of pedals. I'm a PRS guitar artist. So uh, Vernon and Doug, like you guys, massive pedal boards. Like, what is the thought process when you're picking a certain piece of gear to take? Signal flow? Is it trial and error? Well, oh, you want to go first, Vernon? Yeah, man. Um, <laughs> well, well, you know, Living Color. You know the living color songs demand a certain a certain palette. Like the, I think Doug would agree. Like our different gigs have different palettes associated with them. Right. And since there are different palettes associated with them, it's really, you know, what what works for each of the tunes. You know, and um, I use a, a kind of multi effect, but also along with pedals, I've been using Line Six Helix Unit. As well as using stuff from Eventide and some stuff from Strymon, and certain you know different pedal kind of pedal companies like Chase Bliss, and I'll swap different things in and out, you know. But um, the main thing is having a palette, and also to have subtle differences, you know. Like, say the the sound I have for Colt is not the same as have the sound I have for Middleman or Desperate People, you know. So that the so that over the course of a set. You know, these subtle differences, you know, also add up to the sound of the band. And, um, you know, we're just both, I know we're both curious about the frequencies and what's the next freaky thing. You know, we're always searching for the next other, other thing. So, but at the bottom line is make it all work for, make it all work for what we're doing. Cool. Yeah. And I guess to chime in on what Vernon just said, um, on the other side of the coin, it's like it's preparation. It's having spending time with your instrument, making sure that it's functioning properly, 
have good cables, good power going into your pedals. And then also, um, like Vernon said, you know, we both have a way of exploring. And as time has gone on in the band of Living Color, we found uh, a way to kind of like continue to challenge ourselves with the sounds that we have, but also play the music. And it keeps things fresh and vibrant. So when it comes to pedals for me personally, and my pedal board is, it, it, it kind of changes over time, but sort of it's been the same. One thing that I always have on constantly is a Sanzamp. And it's um, my Sanzamp bass driver. That's the one unit that's always on. For me, other units that I use, which is, uh, you know, right here, uh, I'm using some dark glass products, which are really good, a whammy pedal, Pigtronics products, uh, like the new, um, Source Audio C4 synthesizer, different things for different sounds. But the key for me is uh, I have to play with the drummer and I have to play with the rest of, with everybody else. And I'm constantly listening to what everybody's doing and trying to find a balance and the proper approach to let out certain sounds. But most importantly, it, it has to be musical. It still has to be a part of the uh, of of the compass of the music that we're that we're playing at the time and also speak in a way where it's where it, it all it all balances out it's like maybe sometimes you could you can i could hit a i could hit a device where it's like i'm no longer playing in the sandbox with everybody else <laughs> it's a bit overwhelming but if it's done in if you if you drop bombs at the right place it could be could be quite nice over the years, Vernon and I have developed a, a, a way to, to speak to each other, and we constantly keep each other engaged on stage, if I may say that, just Absolutely. from our sounds, you know? Yeah. you know? And it's not just, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, you mentioned signal flow, and that's a very, you know, that's a very important component of it, you know, like um, the difference between you doing things in series and doing things in parallel because you want your instrument, you want the actual naked instrument to be as clean as possible, you know what I mean? So one of the things, like people see like a lot of pedals, but they may be thinking that everything is going sequentially, but actually a lot of times my signal flow is in parallel because if you do everything in series, your signal will, my signal will start to degrade. And instead of doing that, you know, I, I have a whole way of kind of splitting my signal and sending it to different different groupings of effects including synthesis and use sometimes i use a, a ipad sounds and things like that i love it like I, i'm a huge gearhead one of the things we do here at the school back when we could have people in real life is my entire pedal collection is in a case in the front of the in their lobby and i let the students take out the pedals like you would take out a library book hey go home and try this thing out hey go home and try this thing out actually some of them have had them since COVID started so i don't know if i'll see those again but usually it's a reciprocal thing because i love the idea of tweaking and modifying sounds and having i i've having you know watched rig rundowns with you guys it's just incredible the amount of stuff that's all working in unison in a really really cool way so that's, that's inspiring i just um, want to chime in real quick the one thing that's very important to remember with all the kids is there's a responsibility when you have pedals because they can stop a gig you have to make sure things are working properly you have to constantly test them and make sure the pedal that you choose 
Some pedals, when you hit them to activate them, they'll pop. And when you're at a big gig, it, it's, it's problematic. So it's like, there's a responsibility as a bass player in particular, um, but it's very, very important to make sure that your stuff is working properly and you have to constantly main, uh, check on it. Make sure your batteries are working in your bass. If you have a pedal that has a battery, make sure that everything is fresh. All your cables, all your power, mm. it'll stop the gig. Sure. It'll stop sound check. And, 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 it, and, it, and, and it will happen. You know, there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than the in, the worst problem to have in a band context with gear is an intermittent problem. Like the problem that just shows up and is obvious, you can fix that. But the problem that comes and goes away <laughs> seems to be fine is the problem that's going to show up in the exact middle of the gig. So those, those kind of things, like, because the thing is, we live on hope and a prayer, right? So you jiggle the cord and then you feel lucky. And actually, that's not, that's, we have a tendency because we're, because I, I think we're, we're very, um, how can I say, we're very, uh, um, like baseball players have these rituals and things, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We, we want to keep certain things the same way all the time. And, and if something's going down and something's going wrong, you need to handle it as soon as it comes up and don't tell yourself it's going to be okay. That's tremendous advice actually. Cause you're right. We just want to, Oh, it'll be fine. Don't worry. And then, yeah. But you got to recover from that as well, because once that happens, you as a player can, what I call hit the shank. You know what I mean? It kind of like you just get taken out of the whole game because you prepared and prepared and we're at home. You were at home you did everything right. You got all your pedals together, did everything right. And then you packed it up. You got the plane. It got jumped around, got the sound check. And guess what? Something doesn't work. And guess what else? It's a Saturday afternoon at six o'clock. And guess <laughs> what? You can't replace it. Yeah. So you're, I'm up there going, hey, Vernon, man, you got that. Um, Absolutely. Got that. But the good thing is because Will, I'll let him chime in next. Between the three of us, we generally have. He, got, he has a pedal board too. <laughs> but if, if something goes down, I could go, yo, Vernon, man, you got that uh, nine spot power supply that I could use. Oh, yeah. We've saved each other, whether it's a whammy pedal power. Or Will's got a whammy pedal. Will, I, I need this or whatever. So Boys there's a one spot ready. Yeah, I have a one spot ready. You always got to have a one spot ready. For real talk. <laughs> it's true, though, isn't it, Bernie? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Well, Will, you should ask Will. Will really is kind of like dealing in the, in the world of electronics as well. So well, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's so cool to watch the arc of you guys as a band. You know, it, it started, started here, where everyone knows this amazing mm -hmm. record. But, you know, as, as your sound developed over the years, there, there were more electronic elements and synth kind of stuff in there. And then, you know, from a drummer's perspective, like what what took you there? And then, uh, you know, what's that process like for you? Wow. Well, it's a combination of things. I mean, I'm fortunate to be in a band with Brennan and Doug because I actually can learn about the pedals um, from a guitar player, bass player's point of view. One of the things, I mean, I learned from both guys. One of the things that I learned from Doug was about single 
signal paths because I used to just think you could put any pedal on the floor and slap it together and connect it. And Doug would tell me, no, man, don't put the delay before this, before that. What led me there was basically just um, one of Doug's colleagues, first of all, is Keith LeBlanc, is a drummer that I really dig, who was doing things with electronics early on when a lot of drummers were not. And I had a couple of chats with Keith just about sound. Uh, I'm a bit of a sound freak. I like you know, all types of acoustic sounds and, and, and different timbres of drums and percussion. And the idea was really just to, to um, put myself in a guitar player or bass player or saxophone player's shoes and, and think about my instrument beyond just a, a pitch, a tone, a muted sound or a stick in a brush. I wanted to have delays. I wanted to have distortion. At that time, it was around the mid nineties and this amazing instrument came out called the wave drum. And I remember, I think Doug's the first one I played. I played the instrument for Jack Jeanette and I went out to Long Island to the cork factory. And um, I saw the demo and it looked great. So I picked up two of them and I came home and I didn't read the manual and I just plugged it in. And I said, finally, I can start to get into some of these kind of spaces Vernon and Doug are in and, and in a percussive way. There's also melodies there as well, but then now I can sort of hybrid the melodic situation with the rhythmic situation and start to experiment with keys, pitches, scales, and rhythm. So it was really an experiment. And then I just, I made this recording called Drum Wave. And it was me with the drum and some pedals recording at that time I had ADATs, just recording like two or three hours of noodling. And uh, um, Doug's the first person I played it for. Doug popped over one day and I said, check this out. He goes, man, you should, you should start to really incorporate that and use it and put the record out. So I just kind of chopped up a few things and I put that record out. And then it was the beginning of me really starting to think about my instrument in a different way. And, um, you know, both of those guys are scientists, so I can ask them the academic things behind sounds. Some things don't work with electronic percussion. Some guitar pedals and bass pedals don't work because of the frequency range that comes out of a, out of a drum. A, a djembe or a tabla is going to have a different effect on delay than a snare drum would, for example. So that was also the fun part of seeing what works where in the percussion family, what works with the pedal family. But I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Um, it takes me out of the usual. I, I guess it's kind of like playing the drum set is, is driving a, a, a car and playing with the pedals is, is, is driving a, a, um, a car where you could take the top down. You know, nice. it's like a different experience. The top down experience is more the, the pedal experience. So same vehicle, different experience. Tremendous analogy. Love that. Yeah, I think it's so cool, you know, if you follow the arc, you know, through the different records to see these different things and watching your live videos, you know, as I was prepping for this, I was like, holy crap, these guys are doing ridiculous stuff. Um, what is the writing process like? Like, um, Doug and Will, you just jamming out something, Verdon, you coming with a riff. Corey, is it, is it melody? Is it lyrics? Like, how do you put songs together? We've done, we've done songs all different kind of ways. We've done songs from jams. We've done songs from individual writers bringing the whole tune in. We've had uh, collaborations between between us, you know, two or three of us to work on, you know. So the songs have had all different kind of genesis, genesis you know, and um, they've, they've come about all different kinds of ways. One, one thing I want to mention about electronics is that Living Color, we're, we early on, we, we used, uh, have always used extensive use of sampling um, as part of the sound palette of the band from the very first record. You know, some we've used things as intros, we've used things as accents, as musical um, components of our songs. 
um, we haven't actually done a lot of sequencing, like using a playing to sequences. We've actually done a lot, mainly played live, but used samples. And we and we go back to like the S nine hundred, you know, the S one thousand. I mean, the early Akai. Oh yeah. You know, you know what I mean. Oh yeah. Early Akai joints. Um, we've done everything. We've you know uh, triggered trigger samples from you know trigger samples from laptops. Um, Will you know any given night? We, we it's an instant remix because Will will hit every day. I'm saying <laughs> here, the introduction to Love Rizzo's Ugly Head is in the middle of this little pig, and that would be hey, you got to see Corey's face when that happens. It's a constant remix, you know, funny vibe for sure, but any old time. So that's uh, basically a feature of the Living Color Experience. Well, I got I got that's to give Vernon, I got to give Vernon mad props because first joining the band, um, you know, Vernon basically gave me an assignment. You know, in all in all reality, I mean, he gave me he gave me an assignment, especially the funny the other songs you hit the sample and play, but Funny Vibe had samples throughout the, while mm -hmm. the songs playing, and I was kind of going, well, how am I going to do this? And Vernon's vibe was like, you know, you got to figure, you know, I don't know, man, we got to. So he act, and I play that song left-handed kind of. So I got to play the samples with the left hand and then play the other patterns a little bit more right-handed between. So I approached that song. So um, that is, I mean, he gave me a couple of assignments, but that was the one I have to honestly say, funny vibe to play funny vibe, left-handed lead, and then still play the samples and still play the pattern was something I, I had to work on both at home and in the, in the practice space. So Vernon kind of really pushing me into that, into that area also opened up my my head to using the drum cat right and these other kind of examples early on and um yeah you know i would say sometimes sometimes it's my fault and then sometimes in those early 80s days the, the samples would misfire i wasn't playing it at all and you would just, yeah you know, we turn around and i look at his face like it's not me it's not me it's not me <laughs> <laughs> so there were times when the technology wasn't great and and um you know, you could hit the snare really hard and, and, and love rears would go off, you know what I mean? That kind of thing, you know, you had to deal, it was still dealing with some, the guitar, the thing about the guitar and bass pedals are to me, they almost kind of come out the box really set up for you to use in a brilliant way. And you start getting drum things in there. The, 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 the drum community came to, came, I think, kind of came to the baseball game like in the sixth inning, you know, and, and, and they were more interested in the sounds and technology. So our field, we had to, things had to, had to catch up to the guitar thing because things misfired. Um, there's some samples didn't have volume control, some did. So there were all these variations. And as Roland, and Roland was probably more the, you know, you know, and drum cat, Mario DeCurtis's gear, which is killer, the drum cat gear. Those were the first companies that got into individual pad, individual volumes, splitting the sounds and that kind of thing. But um, I have to give her any credit. That, that was, a I remember early on, that was an assignment to, to think about how are you gonna physically play the samples where they are in the song and still play the pattern. So it, it also, uh, the, the electronic acoustic thing also gave me, that was the beginning of me thinking about now, even my academic format into playing sounds and playing patterns where where the drum set wasn't just the palette anymore. The hi-hat and snare and tom wasn't it anymore in the cymbals. Now you have a pad with six to nine sounds. How are you gonna still make something funky and then still have the accents and make it sound like Really, you're not doing it in the way, and that was the that was the fun challenge of combining both of those things. That's so cool, so cool. It, it you know, it's like I said earlier, all you guys are so incredibly talented at what you do. Um, 
And now you add these other elements in there. It's all of a sudden like, oh, here's something. Oh, we're going to nail that too. Like it's just continually reinventing something. And I think that's so inspiring for any musician watching, you know, for me personally, you know, with the pedals and things like that, new pieces of technology, I just axe effects, uh, neural, the, the quad cortex is coming out. Like always have your finger on that pulse, you know? Oh, yeah. It'll always change. I mean, if you think about the history of, of, um, of music, Hit music and technology have always been parallel, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in, I mean, if you think about the manufacturing process, whether things, the way things were recorded, the actual instruments, the microphones evolved over time. So all of these things have changed. You know, I mean, at one point you had to bounce, like you, they had four tracks. At one point, the only way you could mix was to have the bass player come close and bring the upright bass closer to the microphone. And so it's amazing when we listen to old recordings, how great old recordings sound because it was two tracks, one track, mono, right? So people had to be positioned. So all of the things that we're doing are evolving constantly. And the same thing with the young people you're teaching, all of that's changed, you know, all of that's changing. They recently had a, a young guy who got a, a got a Grammy nomination for an album that he recorded entirely on an iPad? He did everything on his iPad, and it was like an R and B thing. And he got a, a nomination for engineering, and he and it was like so a lot of things upend, you know, the conventional wisdom as we go as we go along. Yeah. You know, like you have a piece of gear and you think it's nice and you're you're set, right? And then you hear about something that's half the price and half the size. It does twice as much. So my, um, my question to you is: um, having a school, um, what is what? Are you, what's your technique in the school? I'm curious because all of us do a little bit of teaching and techniques. And just a question to you: like, how is it working? I know it's COVID now, but are you using like what's the then the, what's the academic range? You're using electronics. You're also using, you know, YouTube. It's yeah, gotta be, it's got to be interesting to be a student these days, from what Vernon is saying. So, how is it working in your in your facility? It's been it's been so quick to have to pivot. I think I was saying to Doug before we went live, like we we were doing you know hundreds of lessons a week in person, and then um, the second death from COVID in New York State happened in our town before stuff got wow. crazy in New York City. Wow, and. Uh, like a week before that hit mainstream media, I just pulled all the lessons. I said, we're going online. I don't know what this thing is, but safety first. And it started on Zoom. And now we use some supplemental software called Musico, which allows you to sort of interact in pseudo real time. You can put the backing track. They can record their parts. Um, you know, I, I got to hand it to, to my team of teachers. You know, every person is really gone in head first with multiple camera angles, close up of the fretboard, close up to the uh, keyboard. Um, our drum teacher, you know, we're in New York State. He lives out in Utah because wow. we just needed someone virtual. And uh, he runs a, 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 a roll-in kit through an interface so he can mix the channels individually. And you can hear every channel perfectly on the other side. And, like, Zoom, it, it gets, like, you know, the, the bandwidth is tiny, so it garbles up. But once we brought this guy on, all the students were like, it's like we're sitting in the same room. So it's like constantly struggling to find these technical workarounds to be able to to jam because in person we would jam like we have a big you know drum room jam room in the back and we would always go back and do it. Um, but it's finding lots of ways to. I'll send them tons of videos, uh, all different degrees of professionally done to just on my iPhone real fast from home. You know whatever they need. Just trying to be available 
as much as possible and make it feel as close to normal. I don't want to be rude, gentlemen. I just got to I got to grab a cable because my phone battery is going down. I'm just going to mute the, my camera. You can continue. I can hear you. I just okay. in my jacket. I just want to go grab my cable and come right back. No worries. All right. Thanks. No worries. What's um, really happening is Will's on a secret mission and we can't tell we can't know about it. That's right. That was an undisclosed location. <laughs> undisclosed location. Yeah. Um, so maybe we can go around and, and you guys can answer this one individually and then just Will can go last for it. What was for each of you the first record or first concert that you attended or consumed that made you say, this is what I want to do. Oh, man. Uh, see, I, the first, my first concert I ever saw, I bought the ticket with my own money and which is connected to the first album I ever bought was, um, Funkadel was, uh, Funkadelic Cosmic Slop. And I saw, um, Funkadelic on the Cosmic Slop tour. At Madison Square Garden, and wow. uh, that was a completely crazy experience. Wow, um, that was, you know, that was uh, that was uh, wild. You know, There's, that was the whole P Funk Funkadelic scenario. Good times, and um, it was a great show. And also, war, also War War and Rare Earth were on that same bill, and uh, War and uh, War and Funkadelic were amazing. Yeah, it was that 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 was something. Cool. Um, when I was about eight or nine years old, my brother took me to the Apollo to go see James Brown. It was one of one of those those month long stands James Brown was doing at the Apollo, and this was like he I was we went to the evening show because they had two shows a day um and so the band was really warmed up everybody was going crazy everybody was going nuts and i'm looking around at all these people yelling and screaming and everybody on stage is yelling and screaming it's like i don't know what the hell this is it's very 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 strange i don't know what this is but it did something to me it, 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 it actually it motivated me somehow and i don't know how it did but it did there was that and my parents took me around that same time to go see Jesus Christ Superstar. And I saw Carl Anderson, who sort of looked like me, and I said, I want to do that. I want to sound like that. Um, and jump cut 30 years later, I, I, I do Jesus Christ Superstar with Ted Neely from the movie, and I'm in this band. Mission accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> okay, for me... I was in the Bahamas. My mother's from Nassau. And I was about maybe 12 years old. But I had a premature mustache and a big afro. So my, my I have young uncles, and they would sneak me into these nightclubs to see these bands. And one band, that they, they took me to this place called the Banana Boat. And the name of the band that was performing was Ezra and the Polka Dots. <laughs> and um, club is packed. And the Bahamian musicians, because they're playing constantly all the time for tourists, they're like a live jukebox. So they're playing anywhere from 
they're, they're listening to country western to to motown playing it really flawlessly i'll never forget so i go and i'm watching the band it was like first of all i was just amazed that i was in a night i was in a club <laughs> that was the first thing because if my mother knew that my uncles had me in that club she would she would have skint them alive so so I'm sitting around looking. I'm like, man, this is kind of cool. Now, the other side of the coin is this. My uncles came up with the bright idea of telling people I was Jermaine Jackson in the Jackson 5. So, <laughs> so what took place then was like this kind of sense of now they would take me to nightclubs and say, hey, man, this, we have Jermaine Jackson from the Jackson 5 here. And because there was no television station there and it was late 60s, people believed them. So they would throw me into the club, throw me in to the club and my uncles would instantly start ordering drinks. So they used me as a as a, a way to crash clubs and order drinks. So now here I am, I'm like, I'm playing a little bit of guitar at that time. And, um, and I'm digging the music, you know, I'm listening to like some of the first disco hi-hat was Calypso hi-hat coming from the Caribbean. And I'm loving the music. But what I'm not digging is the fact that my uncles are using me as a, I'm like, you know, to, to hustle me up to get drinks and stuff. So at that point, I made a decision. I was like, you know what? I, I got to go home and I got to figure out, how, do I want to spend my life impersonating the fraud or do I want to try to really figure out how to play and really work at this instrument and play it? So that was kind of like the first time I, I saw kind of like it, it, the spark hit was in the Bahamas. The second time is when I got a chance to actually go on stage. And and again, like Vernon, it was at a pep rally, high school. Mm-hmm. And um, ninth grade, curtains open. I don't even have a bass. I had a four string guitar that I just took the strings off. She couldn't, couldn't afford a bass. I was trying to borrow a friend's bass, but he wouldn't even let me borrow his bass for the gig. Packed, mm-hmm. 1970. I'll never forget that feeling because when the curtain opens and you see your whole school yep. looking at you and those girls that you might have had your eye on, and I'm just kind of like, it's like you freeze for a minute and mm-hmm. and time stands still. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way I can describe it. Time stands still. But I got through it, you know, so that was phase two of like, okay, I did it. That was a big gig for me. That was the first gig, you know, it was a huge mm-hmm. gig. Then, because I have an older brother and sister, not to get too long-winded, there was a lot of bands around here, but then I went to go Coolin' the Gang. Coolin' the Gang came to town, and I bought the record. Big Coolin' the Gang uh, fan. And they came to town, and I was like, that stuff was so funky, mm-hmm. and it was so dope that I was like, that's it. Nice. I'm a huge Coolin' Gang fan. Mm-hmm. Did it for me. That's uh, awesome. I only heard a piece of the question. Could you repeat that for me, please? Yeah, man. What was the you know the first concert you attended or a record you ingested that made you say like this is what I want to do? First concert I attended. Wow. Yeah. I, I would have to say, growing up in the Bronx and uh, being around a lot of great musicians up here. The first concert I attended was some cats playing in the park. I mean, it wasn't really in the venue. And up exactly. here in the park, um, in Hafen Park, and, um, all the guys in the band know the guys that are from up this way, you know, the the, the unlimited touches and the Tunstan Steels and Steve Jordan and 
uh, uh, Lenny Underwood, Pumpkin, so much great musicians in the area. What the guys used to do was they would get together in the afternoon and they would pick a record and play from top to bottom. My brother happened to be one of the drummers in one of those bands. There was a band was called Funk Masters. And um, you, it was they would take a, a Cool in the Gang album or, or a um, uh, 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 Ohio Players, uh, or even at that time, the Fusion was starting to get popular in the 70s, but they would take a record and play both sides top to bottom. That was the thing that you did in the afternoon. When the girls came in the park, which was after seven o'clock, everybody just played a pocket and they started playing more James Brown and more things. So it was an interesting time when I played basketball. So I was always in the park all day anyway, but it was interesting to see. Um, that was my first concert and probably the first time I was, ex uh, I was, I experienced um, music in an, in, a, in, a, in an area where it touched me. It wasn't really, and it was since I knew the guys and the guys knew me, it was a different kind of an experience than paying a ticket and going into a venue. But living in this city, you know, I did have that experience too. Of going to see, going to see um, uh, uh, music, and then the first records. It's funny because I grew up. I'm the youngest, so there were already records in the house from my dad's jazz collection, even the comedians too as well. And then um, he liked Harry Belafonte also, and and Leontine Price was classicals, all of these things. So I already had a lot of music already. But when I, I think when I was 16, I I went to the record store. I had enough money to get two albums, and I bought. Um, uh, uh, Miles Davis, Nefertiti, and Jeff Beck Wired. I figured I'd go two different directions on that because, to be in all honesty, I already had a lot of great music in the house, so I didn't need to buy Motown or Ohio Players. I have an older brother and sister, so those those were the first records when I was 16. I was I was legally allowed to have a record player in my room, a stereo system, um, which I still have, and I and I, I went down downtown to buy my first two recordings of my own. So those were the first two, but um, live music, fortunately, seeing it in the Bronx, it, it was in the park every weekend. If you wanted to go see who the new guitar player was, who the new trombone player was, who the new vocalist was, somebody had somebody on stage between Friday night and Sunday night. And it was a beautiful ex experience to, to see your neighbors and people in your community sounding amazing and playing note for note records that you had in your collection. That's awesome. Very cool. Um, I'm going to do another gear question because I'm a gear nerd. Um, you know, you guys have been lucky enough to, to have uh, signature instruments along the way. And you know, even the beginning, my first uh, you know, Cult of Personality video, the uh, ESP, I imagine, that guitar was burning. And just the, yeah. the graphics were just beautiful. Do you still have that guitar? It's, I have it right here. Oh, my gosh. It's right there. <laughs> wow. Dude. And... um. And this guitar is actually going to be going um, to the Smithsonian to be installed in the uh, African American History Museum. Nice. That's amazing. Congratulations. That's incredible. This, this uh, was built by the ESP company, and I got it in, in 1986. And I wrote the, uh, the riff, the riff for Cult of Personality. We were all together, and I played that riff on this guitar. So it's, very, it's, a, very special, it's a very special thing. And... Um, and uh, yeah, cool. Wow, wow. Literally just happened to have it back here because I had to take pictures of it to send it to these people. That was like my biggest long shot of questions and it was right there. So that that was just ridiculous. <laughs> um, when you were putting together the Vela 
PRS model or, or Doug, your you know your signature base is like what is the process in which you're doing that? Is it down to the pickups, the fret wire, the wood type? Well, for me, it was you know I just I was lucky to be working with Jeff Beck at the time, and then then happened to be in the right place at the right time. That's how I came in contact with Spectre. Kramer was the company that was distributing Spectre at the time. They showed up at a Jeff Beck Jagger rehearsal to try to persuade Jeff to use one of the guitars. Jeff took a little shining to it, just had a little glance, left the room, and then Pierre de Beau, de Beau part was like, well, Dougie's interested in Spectre basses. And that's how I got interested, you know, how I got hooked up with Spectre. At that particular time, it was it was limited. They really had like one instrument. There wasn't many models or different styles. It was one instrument and it was they would give you a loaner bass to use. So what I did at that particular time, not being experienced at knowing like, okay, use this wood, that neck, these pickups, whatever. The instrument sounded great for me. I just wanted to have the neck thinner. And, the, and while you're at it, make the body a little bit thinner as well. And that's kind of what how it played out for me. I started off playing a jazz bass, 1972 jazz. So I was used to that profile. And I just carried that over to my Spectre. And um, and it's been working for me. It's pretty much been working for me. It's from my 1987 Spectre and my 19, it's this one. This is the first one I got. Wow. That's it. Mm -hmm. Little thin neck profile, a little bit thinner. A lot of battle, a lot of battle scars on the back, but it's a, you know. Um, so I did that, and then I was then while while I was at it, Stuart was just starting to make to get into the world of five string basses, and I just happened to again be at the right place at the right time. So I got this one from him, which is the ninth fifth string he ever made, and and at that time they were still kind of. They only had four colors you could get, natural wood, black, white, and um, red. So I got, this was the original color. So mm -hmm. it faded over the years to that. That's awesome. And, um, and to, you know, a good axe is a good axe. So to this day, even though I have other Spectre bases, to be honest, none of them have been able to be duplicated like Mm -hmm. My 1987 Spectres. I probably got about 10 of them upstairs. Wow. And they all have a good, um, none of them have the, the, the how, what it is, how instruments are, you know what I mean? None of them seem to have, have, have uh, cut the mustard. I have another two bases here from the 87 series, a, a, fr a black fretless that I played on um, nothingness. And then I have another white, uh, I call it the Sting bass that has two jazz pickups, but my 87 Spectre basses to this day are still my go-to instruments, period. My my 72 Fender Jazz, a couple of instruments. That's here. my favorite. That's the Sugar Hill bass. I did all the Sugar Hill records. I love stuff that like bass. Wow. Um, that's somewhere. Well, you know, it's it's upstairs, but it's, it says hi. <laughs> instruments, instruments are funny because they, you know, I found that uh, I like a particular neck shape, and 
the next shape that I like is a v, is a V-shaped neck. It is basically from Fender had used many neck shapes for the Stratocaster, but there was a period from 63 to 65 where they had a V-shaped neck. So and the content always, has to be, right? Right. And I always yeah. like the feel of it. So all of my guitars, pretty much, that I've done with companies have this particular neck profile. The uh, the ESP, the Cult of Personality ESP has it. And then when I moved to the Hamer Company, um, they built me this guitar right here. Kind of had it right here. This guitar right here, right, which is, this is the guitar I, I played with Living Color the most. I love that guitar. Sounds yin -yang, great. This guitar, the Yin Yang guitar. It's, which one, the, the Yin Yang? Yeah. Yin -yang. And this was, and, and the funny thing is, Joel, uh, Joel Danzig uh, from the Hamer Company, he heard my ESP and he said, Man, that guitar is really cool. Do you mind if we borrowed it? And I sent it to him. And he, and he had it. And he, and he, and he actually it was very interesting that someone from another company would say this, particularly an American company saying it about a Japanese guitar. He said, That guitar is amazing. He said, Like, he, they played it, put through a lot of different things. And he said, let me try to make a guitar that would match it. And then he built this guitar. And it's a lot, it's lighter. It also has a V-shaped neck. And a, this guitar has been with me for, it's, it's, it's reliced. It's beaten up. It's been thrown across stages. It's been dropped. Um, it has some of the earliest, uh, I had EMG pickups in, the, in that other guitar. And I, I stayed with EMGs on this one, and um, it's fabulous. You know, I, I did, I've done, I've used uh, the Yin Yang guitar on all the records since it appeared. Since I got it, I've used it on all of all, all the records, and um, it's been a it's been a mainstay. Um, but of course, I also have this guitar, which is like a signature, it's a limited edition PRS signature instrument. And the first one that I got, Savella, also V V shaped neck. The first one I got, we were on the road. We were actually opening for Aerosmith. And they sent this instrument. It was my may may have may have been in Michigan. And they sent it to the hotel. And from the time I took it out of the box, this guitar is, is amazing. And it's around here somewhere. Um, so I've been very fortunate with the instruments over time. Like with each company, they've made at least one instrument that really has been amazing to me. Um, I also had a, a, a time with Parker and I love the Parker guitars. Uh, unfortunately, the Parker brand kind of went sideways through mismanagement, uh, which is a shame because it's a, it's a great, it was a great brand. And yeah. hopefully it'll be resurrected at some point. The brand will be. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, your PRS signature, you know, I've played those and I, they're fantastic. Um, all PRS stuff is, but I just, I like, I know what you're talking about with that V neck and I have the way my hands are that fits in my hand very nicely. So I totally get what you're saying there. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm very proud. I'm very proud of how it turned out. And I, and I also did the, um, the collage, the artwork on the pit guard, you know, and they kind of went with that. And so it's very cool. It's awesome. 
Um, all right, let's let's see. We're running low on time here. Let's go a bit on songwriting. Um, so a big thing we try and do with all of our students, as I mentioned, we put them into groups. But we folk, if you're playing guitar, you're writing songs. If you're playing piano, you're writing songs. If you're playing drums, you're writing songs. Everyone's a musician. Everyone should be writing music. Um, and a lot of people struggle, honestly. They're afraid to write lyrics because they're afraid to put their emotions out there and tell a story. So, um, Corey, like, what is your process when you're putting lyrics down? Is it made up stories? Is it stuff you've experienced? You know, is it a combination? I, you know, um, singing a song is, is an exercise in acting. And I was taught that acting is retelling your life story constantly. In any in any way, subtle way or form that you're doing, you're retelling your life story. So when I'm singing a song, I have to internalize it, personalize it, in order to interpret it for people to understand it. That um, so the lyrics that are written or that 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 have been written or that I have written have to have something, have to have a spark of something that I can understand in it, in order for me to do it. In order for me to do it successfully to make sure that you understand what the, what the lyrics are saying. So for songwriters and people who, who have a hard time writing lyrics, write about what you know. Even I don't care if you like if it's like about how you like pancakes, whatever. It, as long as you say it and you say it with conviction, it can't go wrong. I like that. I like that. Do you, each one of you have a particular favorite song to play live? Is there something that, you know, or does it change night to night? I have two. It changes Two or me. three all-time favorites that I like to play, no matter what the show is. And that would be um, Memories Can't Wait, This Is The Life, and um, I forgot the other, Time's Up. Cool. Uh, those, are, those, are, those are three songs where, where if they're, whatever they are on the show, I like playing them. I like the dynamics of the songs, the different parts that change in the song and, and the lyrics of the songs too, even though one of the songs is a cover song. One of the things in, in talking with students about songwriting, I think is, a, is, is something that you probably are doing at the school, but I like that younger students know is you, the same way Corey spoke about lyrics and imagination and storytelling, you have to also do that with sound. Yes. You know, you have to make the guitar sound romantic or you have to make the drum pattern sound romantic. Uh, one of the things I try to do with, with when, I read, when I read lyrics, whoever writes them in the band is think about a pattern that fits the story. You know, open letter to a landlord. I wanted the drum pattern, although it's 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 a huge bite off of Steve Ferrone. <laughs> but um, um, I wanted the drum pattern in the song and the feels to sound like the lyrics, like the sound like homelessness and, you know, I wanted the, 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 the pattern to tell a story. Ed Stasium produced that, did a great job. So he, he was able to get great drum sounds. But one of the things I think it's important, especially for young people to think about, like you, like you give the students those pedals to go home and come up with ideas. Um, some of the things that I do with some of the younger students is I ask them to play me something sad uh, on the drums, play me something happy, play me, play me a victory on the, um, play me a, Play me total loss. What does that sound like? Play me a total loss beat or a total loss pattern. It's very interesting how the younger, younger students do a much better job than, yeah. than the teenagers and the older ones do because mm -hmm. they're so kind of wide open. But 
in talking about lyrics and definition, I also think part of what makes any great track, a Led Zeppelin track or, 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 or a, um, uh, a Fishbone track or a Bad Brains track is what's the sounds and what's being played along with the lyric. And, and that's something that I just wanted to throw out there. For me, working with, working with Living Colors, I always try to think about that. And Memories Can't Wait is such a storytelling trippy kind of a song that I wanted to kind of have patterns and beats that kind of blend in with how Vernon's guitar is playing. You know, the, the, the bass line is, is the, the loop of the bass line. And Corey's lyric on that is almost like he's not singing it almost. He's just telling a story. So what kind of drum pattern are you going to create to set that up? So those things. Time's Up is just fun to play. And it's the one song no one likes making a mistake on. So it's like a great ah. song to, to play. <laughs> It, you know, it, it's the only it's the only time in the show I feel like everybody's concentrating. That's my opinion. It's like it's the one nobody wants to screw that song up. It's really fast and it's really tight, and it's so easy. It's like it's it's the China and it's the bull in the China shop, as they say. You know, it's like it's so easy to do one thing. You know how the song goes. You have fun, and you want to get cute, maybe maybe with the song, but mm. one more, that, that song. I want to get on the other side of move. that. It, that's the, that's yes. the song. That's one wrong move, and you are dead. You are dead. You can't recover. It, it's, it's, it's like turn, turning that corner on the Indianapolis 500. Too far out. That car goes off. You are out of the race. You know. That's kind of. That's why I kind of like that song. The focus. The focus of it. And this is a life. Also, once again, beautiful lyrics. It's a great story. It's great imagination. And um, it, 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 it has a real life spiritual side to it, but it also has this kind of fantasy side to it. I'm talking about from the drummers from part, part wise and what I want to make the stuff sound, how I want the guitar solo to sound. I didn't want it to sound like the verses. I want it to sound like we were in a new, like the guitar solo is like the desert and the song is a city. You know, like that's how I was thinking about the parts visually trying to get the sounds to, to, to match. So, it's something that I that I wanted to add to that. I think it's important, whatever instrument you play, to try to match the tone and your and the vibe with the lyric. Well, I think it's incredible. One thing I like about us as an ensemble is the way the whole thing of patterns and sounds and uh, the feeling of the thing kind of the way they work together and the way they work together inside, inside and outside of different idioms. Like we did a version of the, of the um, song preaching blues um, by Robert Johnson. And the whole way that came about was so interesting because it was, it was really like we were playing the centenary, you know, the hundredth anniversary of, of Robert Johnson. And we literally put together the arrangement in the dressing room on the way to the stage at the apartment. Wow. And which is, if you don't have complete confidence in your people, there's no way you would ever do it. There's no way you would ever do it to just go and then, and, and this, and the thing about it is, I will say this, you know, on behalf of us, that was one of the highlights of that whole evening. There you could watch it on YouTube. It you was, I mean, it. it was great musicians. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, um, Taj Mahal. I mean, you know, yeah. Elvis Costello. It was a house full of legendary people. 
and we did this thing that literally we couldn't we couldn't sound check. We literally met up in the dressing room, and it was wow. like, "What we gonna do?" And, and Corey said, "Put those lyrics on that riff," and we're and we're on stage. And at that point, there's nothing as as Doug likes to say, "The ball is in play." There's nothing else to do but to do it right. So in, in that in that regard, I just want to say sorry, for a minute, but that's a compliment to how long and how well we know each other musically. And that's what our songwriting comes at a certain point. Like we write knowing exactly what Will, what Doug, what Vernon, what I am going to do. You know, there's there are times when Vernon writes lyrics for certain things and he puts a word in that he knows I'm going to sing a certain way. The word is wow. and and I sing and a different way every time. Um so we understand that sort of thing. So when we were doing this show at the Apostle Theater in Harlem, mm-hmm. and we were all flying in from all different sorts of places, we were all, we hadn't been on the road for a minute, but we understood each other. We understood what, what we needed. We understood how, how to do that. And that's, a, uh, and that's how we write songs as well. That's how we create, period. We're like, because we're recreating songs sometimes mm-hmm. on the fly, on stage. That, that's a, that, that's, how we understand each other, how we love each other, really. It's, it's Some of those patterns good. come from a guitar cable going out or a kick drum, a kick drum head breaking. It's true. Sometimes the mic, Corey, Corey, Corey grabs the mic after running out in the audience and the cable's not connected or falls out. And then, you know, Vernon will look at me or Doug will look at me. We'll go into another pattern for four A bars and that whole thing could turn into a song later on. Right. So it's, it's really like, it's, it's like live sports. You know, you got to cover you got to cover something. Some of those things are not planned. Some of the sound check grooves, sometimes their mistakes come into being mm-hmm. amazing, amazing. In the words of Miles glorious, Davis, amazing glorious things. Mistakes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so the, 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 the idea is, you know, it gets down to when you, you have a school and, you're, and you're, you have young students, you know, what is music at the end of the day? You know, is it always this kind of academic thing? Or is it some, is it just sound? Is it noise? Can they just kind of frolic around with sounds to kind of get an idea and that's that's also the part about living color that's great it's 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 very serious musicianship yes but um you know we do leave room for all of the bananas things that goes on in all of 40s heads at times whether it's uh uh avant-garde or it's just something that's very serious or something that's really playful or something that's very academic um it's all, all of those things kind of go into the go into the into the writing and um some stuff's just sectioned out. You know, I've done drum clinics with, with Doug being a guest or me being a guest on Doug's bass clinics and we'll play, go away, or we'll play a song in the clinic, a Living Color song, the part that's direct, directly on the record. And people kind of are like, wow. And they don't realize that those are serious parts. Like we right. we just play the song as if Vernon and Corey are there on stage and it's just bass and drums. It's actually a great exercise that we used to do on each other's clinics and it was it was interesting even for me to hear it that way and to do it that way sometimes because you know those parts it's like four lanes and a highway and those those two parts take up two of those lanes and and i think as a listener or someone who's a living color fan to hear one or two living color songs with just the bass and the drums it lays out a different kind of definition also on on all of those things corey and vernon are doing that might be taken for granted or that might be people might assume it's just little pieces over the top you know, you really have the cake without the icing, so to speak, in a way. It's a different story. So it, it, that that's also 
on the, on the composing thing when it comes down to parts is how things work out. Um, and it's and it's trust. When we do them go away, I had two different drum patterns. And Vernon's idea to say, oh, in the first verse, play the A beat and then play the B beat. In the second verse, play the B beat, then play the A beat. You know, that was the whole thing with those patterns. I was, and, and that was a great idea. I was like, that's a cool Yeah, definitely, because I was playing it the same way on both verses. And he's like, what if you did A, B, and then B, A? And yeah. it, to me, it made the whole song feel different. Sure. So those are the kind of little things that, that um, small little issues that go into things sometimes that change a song that is a composer element. That is definitely like a composer element to the piece of music. Will brings up a very good point in that in terms of thinking about it for your students and writing is don't get stuck. You can get stuck on the song is going to have a life of its own. Like you're creating it, right? But the song is going to also, people, writers also say this about characters. Like you write a character and you intended to kill off a character and the character, you can't do it because the character, and I, and you go, and, and I would go like, what does that even mean? But it's very, very true with songs. Songs will have a, a life of their own and they'll take you on a journey that you didn't expect for it to do for it to take you on. And that's a part of it. You know, that's a part of it as well. And we found it in terms of both the cover things we've done as well as the originals, that there's a certain you know, like we we uh we have been doing the song by Biggie Smalls, Who Shot You. And who shot you? It's it's funny because that song has a weird oscillation because the song is also about what happened to to Christopher Wallace in in the end. So that's also part of the thing that we're very aware of when we're putting certain energy and certain things out into the world. That we're also going on a journey with this music and these tunes. So don't be afraid for the tune to take you, and you may want to muscle the tune and do that, but you also got to be aware that the music is going to take you to a place, and you got to let it. And for younger yeah. students too, man, tell the students they should experiment. Don't yes. you know Vernon's what? Don't get locked into rock only meaning one uh -huh. thing, or, or country and western only meaning one thing. You know, Broken Hearts was a great example. Of, of, of that on the on that on that album that you held up you know let the students know inject all of those things they're thinking about they have the YouTubes and the Spotify's and the so on and they can pull ideas out don't be afraid of trying something in the metal that they're playing yeah or, or something in the acoustic song that's maybe not typical it's, it, it, think about writing also in that in that aspect that sometimes you know the square peg in the round hole actually works for that song yeah that's true also a lot of times it's about having fun. With us, with Living Color, we'll be at sound check. Will, will it be jamming on something or Vernon to play a riff? And then I'll be like, Vernon, what was that? Play it again. You know what I mean? Or Corey will go, we, 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 and we, we coax each other on. You know what I mean? You hear a vibe going and you're like, yeah, man, that's kind of dope. Do that again. Corey would be like, yo, here's a bass line, you know, whatever. But the other thing is just, it's like, just have fun. You know, it's 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 about having fun, so, and I think also with the kids. When I'm working with kids, I'm like, everybody, take your instrument off. All right, let's just just have a chat. Matter of fact, guitar player, get on drums. Yep. They start laughing. Drummer, get on guitar. He might know four. He might know four notes. Bass player, switch it up. 
Why? Because everybody's out of character at that time. And then they're kind of having fun. And then you're like, okay, now what did you think about that? You maybe get everybody on the same wavelength in a sense. You know? But jamming is a good thing just kind of like to get a spark going on. Then once you get a phrase, it's like putting a puzzle together. You start, and then you also have to focus on those that are that are really like in the, in the band that are really, everybody's a good songwriter, but I'll always go to Vernon. I'm like, Vernon is, Vernon and, and, and Will are extensive writers in a sense. So I'll be like, Vernon, what you got? Well, I got this. We might be a little timid. I'm like, break the book out. <laughs> where's, where's the book? <laughs> you know, Vernon will, will be working on something. He'll do a jam and then he'll sit up all night and he'll write something. And then Corey will go to Will, what you got? So we work to, you know, we work together. I might come up with like a phrase or something, like a, a slogan or a line. And then we start to put the pieces. It's like a board game at that time. So you just have fun, yeah. you know? And sometimes you start off with one thing and you splinter off into something else. And then you get back to maybe maybe the other theme you were talking about. Now two things have been created. You just don't take, you know, just have and, fun. And Go ahead, Corey. No, I'm saying Will is one of the best uh, lyricists I've ever met in my life. You know, um, you know, in terms of writing patterns, Doug makes amazing patterns. You know, Bernie comes up with riffs all the time, amazing riffs all the time. When he's just sort of like noodling, he comes up with riffs, and we always sort of hear that in each other, and we go, "Why don't we use that? Just let's use that. Stop that. Play that." Till then, and then we'll figure something out from there, and we go on from there, and it, it extends it, it extends our reach because most people expect we wrote a song that was pr pretty popular that we we're going to write another song just like it. We never have. We have never written another cult person now, ever, and and there's no there's no reason why we should. We always took that as baseline and moved from there. Brings up a good point. I just want to say briefly, Billy Cobham, the great Billy Cobham had a camp last summer where he it was rhythm section lab and it was communicating. You played last. He had yeah. a whole thing oh. with great kill. He had a great camp with killer players. And he said he noticed when he hires younger musicians, they don't even know how to talk. They come on the stage and bass player plugs his bass and doesn't even ask him how you doing, what key is it in, what he said, there's no code. Yo, it's a blues. It's a four bars. You open up this. There's the guys just sit down and they just, and he, and he said, how are we going to start it? So he decided, he called me and told me, I, I, I was happy, thrilled that he did it. But he had a camp, four sessions with killer rhythm section guys, with students where you sit down and he said, what's the etiquette for coming into a room, a recording session or a stage and, and making music? First of all, you don't just pick up your acts. When you're meeting people, you don't walk into a, a room. You say, hi, how you doing? What's going on? Can I buy you a drink? Or does all of these things? And he said, in music, it should be the same way. And he was frustrated living in Europe. He told me with younger cats or really great musicians that weren't known, they didn't have any stage etiquette. They would just mm -hmm. walk up and just plug in. And he felt like, he felt abused, he said, about sitting down and having a guy, you look at a chart and they're going to play together without even talking about, yo, man, just, right. you know, you want to, you want to, you want to you, you try this in the samba feel? You know, you want to take four bars out? Let me just look at this letter A for a minute. And that's and, and Billy Cobham told me that he did this. I saw a bit of it online. Maybe you can you can you can find it online. But I yeah. thought that was an interesting approach to teaching 
uh, a guy like him to have a school, have a have a summer camp of band kind of rhythm section etiquette, writing etiquette, what you do on stage, how you work with the horn section, how to work with the guitar, the keyboards, the background vocals. He wanted to have this camp of communicating before writing, and then it makes the writing more enhanced. Yeah, I think you're so dead on with that because a lot of these younger players, they sit and they, they jam with YouTube all day long. And YouTube is a tremendous tool. I'm not putting it down, but they don't have that hang, you know, like it, it's human and it's a transference of energy. And that's a big thing that we try and convey here as well. So that's just so validating to hear, you know, it coming back at me. Um, you know, one of the big reasons why I was so excited to have the whole band here is I think you guys have had such incredible longevity. Um, and I think that comes from the ability to gel together and sort of communicate on this other dimensional level of stuff. You know, we had a period of time, handful of years back, um, Cult of Personality was the song for uh, CM Punk, a wrestler. Yeah. And all these kids were like, I want to learn this riff. And I'm like, whoa, 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 there's more. <laughs> it's not just that song. Check it out. Check out Leave It Alone. Check out Behind the Sun. Keep going. There's more. And I think if people just ride that wave of your musical journey and what you guys put out there and then watch these live performances, I think it, it, it's so there's so much to learn from guys like you. So thank you so much for, for sharing some of your time with me here. That's thank you. Thank you. Thank for you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Yes. Well, I don't take too much of your time because we actually gave me eight extra minutes. So thank you for that. But you guys stay safe, and uh, I'll link all the socials when I repost the podcast and stuff. I'll try and find some of the videos you talked about, too. So we'll see you guys out there. Take care. Thanks, man. All right, gentlemen. Thanks. Thanks. Take care, guys. Safe. Good to see you, man. Take care, guys. Thank Peace. you. All right. Take care. Peace. Bye-bye.